many of you are familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, um, the northern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Israel split into two. And the northern kingdom was disobedient and were, just would not listen to the prophets, would not listen to what God had to say. And so they uh, got a, took his hand of protection off of them. And a foreign enemy came in and destroyed them. And then um, men like Jeremiah were foretelling that the same thing was going to happen to the southern kingdom if they didn't repent. And people were like, oh, no, we're God's people. That's not going to happen. And, you know, spoiler alert, it happened. Um, And the southern kingdom was destroyed, too, which is where Jerusalem was. It was destroyed. And the people were taken, many of them were taken as uh, exiles into captivity in Babylon. And eventually, uh, the Persian Empire came down and defeated the Babylonians. And there was this man who was a cupbearer for the king, uh, who was Jewish. His name, the, the cupbearer was Jews, Jewish. Uh, his name was Nehemiah. And he, had, he got a report that Jerusalem was still in ruins. And it made him very sad. And so he goes before the king, and the king notices his demeanor, which is dangerous for a cupbearer because if you're not in a good mood in front of the king, that could cost you your life. Uh, But the king uh, was kind, noticed what was going on, asked him, hey, what's got you feeling down? And Nehemiah told him about Jerusalem and asked if he could have some time to go back and, and help rebuild the city or, you know, help him whatever way he could. And the king not only said yes, uh, but he gave him some resources to help do it. And so uh, Nehemiah and some others start rebuilding the wall, and there's a lot of uh, people in the area who don't, a lot of countries who don't want that to happen. And so they're fighting against them. So there's a point where they're literally holding a sword in one hand and rebuilding the wall with with the other. And, um, and, and it's all these families are having to, take care of their part of the wall and trying to get it rebuilt and finally they get it rebuilt and they're dedicating everything to the Lord and they happen to find while they're rebuilding things in in the temple this weird thing called the book of the law um, we would consider a big part of our Old Testament and they remember the stories about God but nobody even remembered that this book existed, or that's the way it seems when we're reading about this. And so Ezra, the scribe, he, he finds it, he's showing people, talking about it, and when they're doing this dedication, Ezra gets up and he begins to read from the book of the law. And as he begins to read, the people realize, we have not been doing these things that the book says, this the Bible. It would be like us finding a Bible and realizing, oh my goodness, I haven't been doing any of this, even though I, I believe that there's a God and I love him, I haven't been doing anything that it said. And so the people begin to weep because, and this is supposed to be a celebration, by the way, because the walls rebuilt, you know, we're back in Jerusalem, let's celebrate. And he begins to read the the book of the law, and the people begin to weep. And in their weeping, um, Ezra and Nehemiah have to come over and say, hey, I I know that you're feeling a lot of conviction right now, but this is supposed to be a celebration. 
And so there's this transit. It's this weird transition where the conviction is real. The the book of the law has spoken and like wrecked their their hearts in a good way, and they they know they're supposed to be rejoicing, and yet they're mourning simultaneously. And so they do. They rejoice. They thank God that He allowed them to come back. That they were able to rebuild the walls. They thank God for all of those things. Um, and, and then, after the time of rejoicing, there was a time of repentance. And so, Christmas is weird like that. Because of the very thing, well, I was going to say the Browns, but Miss Brown and Miss Johnson, <coughs> old married lady over here, the very thing that they just sang about, which is, Here's this baby, and if you've ever seen a baby, they're either all beautiful or all weird looking. I'm not sure which. It's maybe both. But here's this baby who happens to be God, who has, as John 1 said, the word, the word being Jesus, became flesh. God became a human. And there's so much joy in that. And, and yet, at the same time, we know that the birth of that baby means his death. That God will die. Now, of course, death could not hold him. And so there's the celebration part that goes along with that. But it's this marriage of these two emotions of joy and of just hurt, just as it was for the people of Israel on the day where Ezra was reading the book of the law, when they were supposed to be celebrating, Christmas can be a little like that. And in the midst of all that, we have our, what, what's going on in our own lives, where holidays in America, especially the Christmas holiday, is a really important holiday for a lot of people. And they talk about the joy. You know, if you watch a commercial, you're supposed to have a lot of joy, right? And you're supposed to be able to buy all these gifts. I don't know where the money comes from, but we're supposed to be able to buy all these gifts and have so much fun with these gifts. And, the, and you know, you want to get the perfect gift for everyone, right? You want to enjoy the time with the loved ones. But, of course, the gifts aren't always perfect, are they? as you can tell by some of the ties hanging in my closet that I don't wear, um, the gifts are not always perfect. And then the loved ones that we're supposed to spend that time with, it doesn't always go so well, does it? And sometimes those loved ones have passed on, and that makes it difficult to even want to do Christmas, to even want to have Christmas. And so... With Christmas comes all of this, this bag of mixed emotions that come from so many different places. In one moment, we might feel like rejoicing, and the next moment, we might feel like weeping, and the next moment, we might feel like rejoicing again. But what I'm going to ask as we look at today's passage is that no matter what our emotions are right now, that just like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah had to come to the people and, and the other leaders had to come to the people and say, hey, 
this is supposed to be a celebration. Let's celebrate. I, I want to be sensitive to the knowledge and, and just the fact that um, some of us in this room have a very hard time this time of year. And maybe particularly this year we're having a hard time. And so there is time for mourning, and we need to mourn with one another. But there's also time for rejoicing, and we need to rejoice with one another. And so during just this few minutes that we have together, I want you, and and by the way, this is a two-part sermon. And so just like when you have your tray of sausage and cheese and crackers, and, you know, you just cut off however much sausage you want and stick the rest in the refrigerator. That's, a, that's what we're doing with the sermon this morning. At some point, I'm just going to chop it off and we'll pick back up. I'll pull it out of the refrigerator next week. We'll pick back up where we left off, okay? Um, why is Rose rolling her eyes and her head at me? I don't, I don't know what's going on here. But anyway, uh, okay. So, with that, the humanity of Christ, our perfect example. We have looked at over the last couple of weeks the humiliation of Christ, how Jesus left heaven in order to come to this sin-filled, pain-filled, hurt-filled, death-filled world. Jesus left heaven in order to come here. That in itself is, is humiliation. But then we looked at the fact that uh, as Elizabeth just read in Philippians chapter 2 that he considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And so he, he, even though he was still fully God when he was on this earth, he willingly allowed some of those God traits, I don't know a better word, way to say that, those attributes, to hang out in the background while he lived his life here on earth. Okay, he could have at any moment called the angels to say that's the end of this. But he chose not to. He waited. He was obedient even to the point of death. He could have at any moment said, you know what, Mary and Joseph, I don't know about this being a kid and obeying my parents stuff. I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. But he didn't. Although there was that one time, right, where he went to the temple and they were looking for him. Where, where else was he going to be, right? He's, he's God. He's going to be at that church. Um, although that's a joke. Uh, he was a lot more places than just church. So in looking at his humiliation, I want us to transition for, to what that humiliation meant. If God was humiliated and he allowed that to happen, then there must have been a purpose behind it, right? And of course, we know that's the cross. Of course, we know that. But there's a big gap in between his birth and his death. That time should not be ignored. He lived a life here on earth. And a lot of times, we look at what his birth means and we look at what his death means, but sometimes we don't look at what his life means. Jesus became a human. There's so much in that. There's so much in that one statement. God became man. What, someone tell me, what's the meaning of Emmanuel? God with us. God with us. 
the promised Messiah who had been, if you read the Old Testament, for generations and generations, decades upon decades, centuries upon centuries, millennia upon millennia, he has been promised. This, this Messiah has been promised. He has been hinted about, and he has been clearly stated. It has been clearly stated that he was coming. There, there were all these types, and then there were all these just blatant prophetic statements. Here he is. God has come. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is born. And we're going to be talking more about his birth next week for Christmas and, and what, and what this, his life means for us. But today, before we go, and just getting a taste of what's to come and helping us to focus, I want us to look at a couple of passage, passages in Hebrews. And Hebrews is written to some people. Guess who? The Hebrews. A good job. Um, it's written to some people who have put their faith in Jesus, but they're from, uh, just like Jesus, they were Jewish. And um, some of the things in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, some of the things in the Old Covenant weren't supposed to be implemented again in the New Covenant. One of those things being uh, a sacrifice for sins. Uh, in the Old Covenant, you had to do that all the time. It, there were all kinds of sacrifices. And then you had the great high priest. and Sorry, not the great high priest. Then you had the high priest. We'll get to the great high priest. You had the high priest in the Old Testament who um, was, it was an office, the, the top priest who, uh, and, and depending on the way you look at this, top priest, I'll talk about some of those duties in a moment. Um, but the, the word is, is that they had to tie a rope around him when he would go into the deepest part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and he would offer a sacrifice for sins for himself because he was a human, he was a sinner, right? He had to make sure he was right with God before he even went in there. But he would offer a sacrifice uh, for sins for himself, for, for the people of Israel, um, and, and, and for your children and your grandchildren, for whoever needed uh, the, the, the sacrifice, he would offer that sacrifice. And then uh, time would roll around for that again, and he'd have to do it all over again. And eventually the high priest would die. Uh, the reason they would tie a rope around him, um, this this. Hopefully this didn't happen, but he was going into the Holy of Holies. And if this man was not right with God and he's walking in there, guess what's going to happen to him? He dies. And they can't go in to get him because only the high priest can enter into there. So what do they have to do with him? I remember one time um, when Rose and I lived in Jenny, Arkansas, huge town, huge town. Okay, it's not incorporated anymore so it's not really a town but it, it's this rural community and Rose called me and she said uh, Philip there's something by the road that's dead I've never seen anything like it you have to go check it out and so I, I go outside and it's a beaver and I called Rose and I said it's a beaver and she said we don't have beavers in Lake Village I said Rose the mascot is the lakeside beavers There are beavers in Lake Village, by the way, uh, in, out in Jenny. And so, uh, now that beaver, anybody ever smelled a dead beaver? 
Not much like it, okay? I got a rope, tied it around the thing, and drug it. It was so, I didn't even want to touch it. It was so, it was huge. It was so heavy, I couldn't hold it on the end of a shovel. And so, uh, that's the way I did it. So, guess what's happening to the high priest? He's treat, they're treating the high priest like I treat a beaver. They're like, we're not going in there for that dude. Tie a rope around him. And so, that's how holy it was. And, and, but that's also how human and fragile the high priest was is that he had to have a rope tied around him because he's coming into the presence of an, of an infinite, great God, and it might not go well for him if he's not in right standing with God. But then there's the great high priest, who is Jesus. And the great high priest made one sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for, to, for the, to cover the sins of anyone who calls on him for salvation, to cover the sins of anyone who puts their faith in him. And he, he only had to do it once because his sacrifice was perfect. And we're going to read this scripture together and you're going to hear about the great high priest. But Hebrews is written to these, these Hebrew people to, to tell them, hey, the way we used to do things, it had a purpose. And there was a reason for it. But now God has changed things. There's this verse in Hebrews that says, if the old covenant was sufficient, there wouldn't be a need for a new one. But it wasn't. And so there was. And the new covenant being that Jesus came and all the things that the old covenant hinted at, all the things that it pointed toward, Jesus came and fulfilled. The law existed to show us we're not God. It, it existed to show us that we're sinners and we cannot uphold God's standard and we need him. We need his help. That's the old covenant. It existed to show us that there was a need for a new covenant. And then Jesus came in, and he upheld the standard of the law. He fulfilled it. He, everything that the Old Testament said you were supposed to do in order to be like God and to please him, Jesus did. And so this is an incredible truth about Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Today, many people will say, yeah, Jesus was a good man, but he wasn't God right? And I've said this before in a sermon, but I, I love the C.S. Lewis quote. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said that a person who, who um, it, let, let me, I'm, I got to shorten it because I'm trying to uh, edit in my head because we've, you know, we've got like 12 minutes left and I haven't even read the scripture yet. So, um, C.S. Lewis is talking about people if someone were to say, make claims like Jesus made, because Jesus claimed to be equal with God. Jesus claimed, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, he is God. He has always existed. He uh, is with God before Abraham, who lived a long time before Jesus, uh, existed. I was already there. I am always there. And we see this in John 1, 1, as we've already looked at in the, a couple weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there. And so C.S. Lewis said, for someone to make those claims, he's either crazy on the level of a poached egg. I don't, I don't know what that means, but apparently that's pretty crazy. Minka thinks so. 
And so either a person is crazy to make those comments if he's not God, because we can't come to Jesus and say he's just a good man because he claimed to be God. So either he's crazy or worse, he's evil. Because if someone claims to be God and they're not, you think that's okay? No. And so we believe that Jesus is God, obviously. And, um, and that's what the author of Hebrews believes. And so in looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 2, we need to get to the scripture. So in Hebrews chapter 2, we see that um, at the beginning of Hebrews, he's even saying this is how God used to speak and this is how God speaks now. And he is beginning this uh, just really methodic process of showing that Jesus is superior to everyone who has ever lived and every being who has ever lived. And, and then he gets, and he's talking even about the angels, and we get to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, and it says this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And so let me break that down a little bit. Verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. That's when Jesus came, and this is a prophecy that was given, I believe, in Isaiah. Here's Jesus coming, and he is uh, on earth. And at that time, remember, he did not demand his rights as God in all areas. And so uh, for a little while lower than the angels. And then it, th- there's this semicolon in my translation. The sentence is continuing, or at least the thought is continuing. And it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. So there are those both emotions in one. A little while, there's humiliation. But then there's exaltation. There's glory. And so we see that here in verse 7. Verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. There will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, we're living in the already but not yet stage where Jesus has done everything necessary to win. Victory is secure and, and certain, and yet he's given us time to respond to his, his offer of salvation. He's given us time to repent and to be in relationship with him. And he's given us time to do this, and therefore there's this gap between his first coming and the time when he returns. Because once he returns, we no longer have time to call out on him. But right now we do. Continuing in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, this is, he's, he's basically explaining the passage that he quoted, quoted. And then at the end of that, he says that Jesus came and did this so that he might taste death for everyone. Who has an opportunity to follow Jesus? Anyone who calls on him. He came so that all would be saved. Well, who, are, who is all? All who call on him. All right, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom... And by whom all things exist. All right, so here he's talking about his 
him being God, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Man, what an interesting passage. Jesus is going to be made perfect? Isn't Jesus already perfect? Well, we have to understand what this is saying. If Jesus came to earth, we had Christmas, and Jesus never died on the cross, would Jesus have been the perfect sacrifice? Not if he wouldn't have died. There would have been no sacrifice. In relation to our salvation, if Jesus would not have fulfilled his calling, then he, it would not have been a perfect coming, for, from our perspective at least, because we would not have an opportunity for salvation. But what Jesus went through, he went through for us. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That, who's that source? God, the Father. He who is sanctified, he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So he's quoting these things. Some of this that we're looking at will come from, uh, came from Psalm 22, which we looked at last week. So moving forward to verse 14. Well, let me say, summarize. He's saying that what Jesus did was enough to adopt us in as brothers. That the sacrifice that Jesus made was enough for us. But I want to get to this part. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in, the, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Okay? A man sinned against God, Adam, and all men afterward inherited that sin nature, right? We've all sinned. If I ask you, have you ever done what is wrong in God's eyes, ever, every one of us in this room would have to raise our hand because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so since man had sinned, man had to pay for those sins. Therefore, God became man in order to pay for the sins of man. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were, sub were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, I want to say something interesting here. That some people were looking at things in a spiritual way that was not biblically accurate. And so they elevated angels and put some things on angels that the Bible never does. And then there was also this interesting false teaching. Uh, now the popular false teaching is, is that Jesus is not God, Right? He's just the historical Jesus. He's just a man who lived, and maybe the stories about him are true or not. That's just kind of like the general way people think about Jesus when they don't understand the truth about him. And, and so now people say that he wasn't really uh, God. But interestingly, in the generations after his death and resurrection, the rumor was, that he wasn't really man. He was this, I mean, how could a man come back from the dead? And so he was something more. And, in, and so, 
it's interesting to me that today we look at God and we say, hey, he, he, he was just a man. But back then they would say, he couldn't have been a man. Man can't come back from the dead. And so uh, remedy, remedy those things. And hopefully, if, if you know truth, that's already taken care of in your head. Um, he was both man and God. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So this is our conclusion, verses 17 and 18. And I want us to look at these just for a minute in a little more detail than just reading them. So going back to verse 17, Therefore, since... Man had sinned, and man had to pay for that sin since there was this great need. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So was Jesus human? Yes. In what respect? Every respect. He was fully human. Now, this is just a taste of what's to come next week, what I'm about to say. I recently read something, and I'm sure that it was one of those things that, like, I'd read a lot and uh, known, but somehow, like, my worldview clashed with what I was learning, and so when I would read it, the full truth of it just wouldn't, wasn't making it into the depths of who I am in my soul. And so I recently learned something that I believe is going to help me look at the world in a different light. Boy, that's a teaser, isn't it? Next week, I'm going to be discussing in detail what that truth is. And so I hope you can be here next week. If not, I guess we need to get our sermons online, right? That We're a little behind by, like, you know, six months. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, so... It has to do with the humanity of Jesus. And it's going to be, that point will be the, the, or the transition from where we are right now into our Christmas Eve service that will be on the 24th. And if, and if you can't come to the Christmas Eve service, don't worry. Those two things will stand up alone next week's sermon and the Christ, Christmas Eve service. Um, and you will be able to worship with your family and by yourself at, during the Christmas season. Um, it, but going back to this, to close out this, this sermon today, Jesus became like us in every respect in that he was human. He was fully human. And it, because he had to do that so that he might become, verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. So not only did he pay for our sins, but he also satisfied God's wrath by paying for those sins. His action satisfied it. And he did that as a great high priest for us. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So the fact that Jesus is fully human means that he can fully help you right now. And there's another passage that we don't have time to get to at the end. Will you go back to the title page, Kimberly? At the end of uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 
and it's verses 14 through 16, so I encourage you to read that in your own time. It just re-emphasizes and goes a little bit further than what we've just read. Um, But Jesus is our great high priest, and he is able to help us. He is like us in every respect. He is fully man. He is also fully God, but he is fully man. And because he is fully man, he can fully pay for the sins of man. And because he is fully man, he is able to to understand the temptations that we go through. Uh, If I put a whole stack of cookies, don't worry, we're about to go. I wouldn't talk about cookies if I had to hold you for another hour. But if, if... I put a whole stack of cookies here, and I said, uh, you can have them, but I would like you to wait. And I didn't specify how long, and then I walk out of the room. I know, uh, because I know my wife, she would be the first one up here to get a cookie. She couldn't wait too long when it comes to cookies. Um, maybe some of you would be able to wait longer, right? Uh, Ken, I bet you could wait a, a tad bit longer than Rose, and, and so you'd wait a little longer. And then Richard, I bet you could wait even longer than Ken. I, I'm just getting, he says no. He says no. All right. So who, who knows the fullest extent that those, of the temptation that those cookies offer? It's the one who waited the longest because he endured the temptation the longest. So we might think that Jesus cannot... Um, relate to our temptation because we're sinners and he is not. But the truth is, is that he understands temptation better than any of us because he waited the longest. He never gave in. And so this holiday season, when we're thinking about Jesus becoming man, let's think about what the fullness of his humanity means for us. It means that we can be saved. It means that He can be with us when we're tempted. He can help us. It means that we have a great high priest who is always at the Father's side praying for us, interceding for us, who is saying, hey, I have saved them. They are yours because of the work that I have done on the cross. He has made propitiation, as verse 18 says. He has done this. He has been there for us. And and, and I hope that that can bring us hope and joy during this Christmas season. I hope that, yes, Let's take time to think about the humiliation. Let's take time to think about what it meant for him to be born as a human. Let's take time to think about what it meant for him to die on a cross. But let's also remember that he is God, a God-man who is fully human and yet fully God, who came to save us, and he deserves to be praised. He deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be exalted. And so he is fully human and he is fully God, and we can find great hope in that. And so we'll, we'll continue with this thought next week. But I hope that this means something for you right now. I hope that if you're going through a struggle right now, if you're going through a temptation, if you're going through despair, if you're going through anything, that you know that you have a great high priest who knows about temptation even better than you know. That you have a great high priest who has came to save you. And so during this time of invitation, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you to respond to God in whatever way he's leading Do you need to go to him and say, God, I have not even considered how well you know about temptation. Help me in my temptation. Maybe you can go to him now and say, God, I need your salvation. You respond to him in whatever way he's leading. Let's stand. I'm going to say a quick prayer for us, and then we're going to have our invitation. Lord, help us. Help us to know that you are God. Help us to know that as a man, 
you experience temptation and that you can help us do it. Help us to know all of what it means that you became man and that you are God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.